1: Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and Stephen Morris, our new European banking correspondent. We're also joined down the line from New York by Laura Noonan, our new US banking editor. This week, we'll be discussing ING and the broader money laundering scandal in Europe. Secondly, a look at women in finance. Is gender diversity improving? And finally, a look at JP Morgan, 10 years on from the financial crisis. Are they the biggest winner? first though to that money laundering scandal and regular listeners will remember that last week we reported on a scandal at Danske Bank well this week we're talking about ING where the finance director Kuz has just resigned on the back of their own scandal Martin you've been looking at this what exactly is going on and put it in the broader context because Europe is taking some policy decisions on this broadening scandal
2: Yeah, Europe is waking up to the weaknesses that are becoming increasingly apparent in the continent's banking system's defences against criminals, siphoning money through the uh, financial system, but we'll come to that in a minute. ING, which is one of the Eurozone's biggest banks, it's got a balance sheet of nearly a billion euros. It's one of the few that are considered globally systemically important by regulators. And it has announced that its chief financial officer, as you said, Kuz Timmermans, who's a 22-year veteran of the bank, is resigning. And the reason for this is that he has been identified as holding ultimate responsibility for the failings in their anti-money laundering systems and the so-called know-your-client transaction monitoring systems that allowed several companies to launder what looks like hundreds of millions of euros over a period of six years. And the bank last week announced that it's paying penalties worth some 775 million euros to the Dutch public prosecutor, which is a record for fines on any Dutch company, and admitted that its systems were not up to scratch.
1: Last week when we were talking about Danske Bank, it transpired that the vast majority of this money being put through one of their Baltic subsidiaries was Russian money. Is that the same case with ING?
2: Well, I think there's a Russian element to at least one of the companies. I mean, this was about failings to do with its Dutch operation, so its domestic operation at ING, where companies had bank accounts with ING, and those companies have been found subsequently to have been using the money they put into ING to pay bribes or to launder money. And one example is a subsidiary of a Russian mobile phone operator called Vimplecom, which had an account with ING and has been convicted of paying bribes to a foreign official to win licences, actually paying bribes to the daughter of the Uzbek president. And this was a scandal that blew up a few years ago. And in investigating that, they found that ING had seen these payments pass through its account without carrying out the proper checks. And so they then subsequently launched an investigation into ING. Other examples are there's a Curaçao women's lingerie company which you might say perfectly normal they would be involved in laundering Um, Uh but 150 million euros passed through an ING account for this Curaçao lingerie company which is very unusual and allegedly there's been some money laundering there and also a one man building supply company in Suriname where a lot of money was passing through the accounts of that company and also a fruit and vegetable import export business (laughs) again that prosecutors in the Netherlands say seems to have been a front company for money laundering So ING says that for the last 18 months it's been tightening up its systems, adding hundreds more people to tighten this up. The chief executive, Ralph Hamers, has been CEO since 2013, and this wrongdoing that was found by the Dutch prosecutor has been going on from 2010 to 2016 so during his time there but the board has come out and the chairman of the supervised board come out and said Ralph Hamers has the full support of the board. The reason the CFO has taken the bullet so to speak
1: is because he had ultimate responsibility for their domestic business. A final word then on what European policymakers are doing more broadly, because this does feel like there's a lot going on in this area.
2: Yeah, there is a lot going on. You mentioned the Estonian branch of Danske Bank, where an investigation found that as much as 30 billion of non-resident money was flowing through the branch in a single year, much of that thought to be from Russian clients. Also, there was a big scandal in a bank in Latvia, which was essentially shut down at the instigation of the Americans, because they said that it was laundering money and breaching sanctions. And that was subsequently found to have substance to those allegations. So I think this has caught the EU and the ECB on the hop a bit. And they're reacting by promising to beef up the powers of the European Banking Authority, which does nominally have the ability to investigate money laundering breaches at European banks, but I think it's got like two people in that unit, so not really equipped to do anything about it. They're also promising to beef up the powers of a relatively new body, the European Public Prosecutor's Office, which will give them powers to investigate financing of terrorist activities across the EU from 2025. So the EU, as usual, is moving quite slowly, but they are focused on this, it seems, and they are determined to try and beef up the powers of pan-European institutions. institutions because up to now it's essentially been up to the individual member states to keep watch on their own banks and clearly it makes more sense if you're looking at cross-border money flows for a pan-EU regulator to have a view on this and perhaps some of these smaller countries like Estonia and Latvia got a question how much resources they have to stay on top of this kind of thing
1: yeah absolutely well thanks for the update on all of that Martin Let's move on to our second topic and a look at women in finance and the gender diversity survey that the FT has just completed for a second year. Laura Noonan, our new US banking editor, and obviously regular listeners will know she has until very recently been our London-based investment banking correspondent. She's carried out this review, speaking to 47 companies and looking at the results, which were marginally better than last year, I think it's fair to say. I spoke earlier to Laura and asked her what exactly the results showed. So Laura, this is the second year the FT carried out its gender diversity review. This time you had responses from 47 companies altogether. What did the results look like?
3: On the face of it, definitely, it looks as if not a whole lot of progress has been made in the last year when it comes to what the industry has long said is a big priority for them. So if we look at the percentage of senior roles which are occupied by women, in the last year, the firm said that 27.2% of their senior roles were occupied by women. A year earlier, they said that figure was 26.8%. So as you'll see, we're talking about an improvement of 40 basis points. So that's disappointing. It was a little better at the middle level and the middle level is a crucial feeder level because if you don't have enough women coming through the middle level, you won't have enough women that you can put into senior roles. So at that mid level, the percentage of jobs occupied by women increased from 42.1% to 43%. That's a bit more encouraging, but I think most people do still say that that is far too slow. The interesting thing, though, is that even though people have been saying that this has been a very tough battle, it's taken away longer than they thought, they are now actually feeling a lot more optimistic about the situation they have been in previous years. There's two main things which are making them think that we may look back and see the last year as being a turning point. The first thing was the UK's gender pay gap reporting. Earlier this year, the UK published the first round of their gender pay gap reporting for all firms above a certain size, and the size threshold was pretty small, so most firms in the city did have to report. The number that they published was a pretty blunt figure, so basically it was the gap between the average amount paid to women and the average amount paid to men. When those figures came out for banks, they were pretty horrible. In some cases, we saw that women earned on average 40% less than men. The financial services companies all quickly said, no, of course we're not paying women less for doing the same job. The reason our average pay for men is higher is because men are in better jobs. Still, the figures looked awful. There was a lot of backlash internally at a lot of financial services firms. And I think there's an appreciation among HR bosses, among senior executives, that the only way to fix the gender pay gap figures is by sorting out the seniority issues that kind of underlie that. So that hate bosses and executives are saying has really galvanised people and has made them think we have to take this more seriously. So certainly there has been a sea change in that. I think in certain firms it was more talk than action and it was more of a nice to have than a need to have. I think that the gender pay gap reporting has really escalated that to a need to have.
1: And Laura, the Me Too movement was a big driver as well, wasn't it? Tell us how that contributed, because it's not obviously directly connected to pay.
3: Because it called out sexual harassment issues in the workplace across industries, it really drew a firm line under what was acceptable and what wasn't acceptable. So most of the firms that we spoke to didn't put in place explicit policies as a result of the Me Too movement. In fact, most were quite defensive and said, well, we already had these policies in place anyway. However, talking to people informally, there has been a subtle shift in terms of the tone and people trying to avoid these kind of events where potentially females could feel excluded, they could feel as if they weren't welcome, they could feel as if they weren't valued in the same way. So by doing away with these kind of borderline workplace events, so we're talking about events in the evening in pubs where a lot of alcohol is taken, events at clubs, things where there would be the potential for incidences to occur which people could complain about later, by taking those off the table because people don't want to be caught up in the whole meeting situation that has actually gone some way to creating a more gender neutral workplace or a workplace where women feel more included and that in theory should fix at least some of the issues which have driven women out of the workforce
1: and so should we be expecting to see big improvements in next year's numbers will we soon be talking about gender parity in banking
3: while it will be faster potentially than it has been in previous years there's still an appreciation this is a very long piece of work and the lead time is still probably going to be years I mean in terms of actually getting to gender parity at senior levels we're only at 27.2 percent now and that's a long long way off 50 percent I don't think anybody's really talking about getting to 50 percent in the next few years what they're hoping is that their percentage increases will be measured in bigger chunks and when you talk to women as well in the industry For some of them, all the policies in the world aren't going to make a difference. Some of them are simply making different choices. And one of the challenges HR people have is that when people leave, it's not necessarily just because of these issues alone. I mean, I spoke to one woman who had left financial services. She is in her late 20s, and she left partly because she looked ahead of her and saw that the road ahead for women who wanted to advance was much tougher than for men, and she thought that it would take an awful lot of effort over time to get to the level she wanted to get at and that it wasn't that likely she'd ever get to the very highest level. But the other reason was just she found another industry that just simply had more to offer. And that's something that I think banks in particular are grappling with right across the space because there is a lot of competition for talent, particularly at the junior level and at the millennial level, which we're always talking about. They're getting offers from tech firms, hedge funds, all these kind of places. So that will also lure some of them out of the financial services industry. And it may well be that those firms are actually faster at moving the gender agenda than some of the financial services firms themselves.
1: Well, let's now go on to our final topic. And it's 10 years on from the 2008 financial crisis. We've been taking a look at many aspects of what has happened over the past decade, And one piece which we'll be publishing in full on Wednesday morning on FT.com is a look at JP Morgan and asking the question, are they the biggest winner? Well, discussing that in advance of the piece, we spoke to Daniel Pinto, who's JP Morgan's investment banking chief. And we asked him to think back to 2008 and what it was like going into the crisis, how irrational the markets were and how you struck the balance between supporting clients and pulling credit lines.
4: Once you are there, you have to risk manage it the best you can. But it's always a choice to say, well, these things you do and these things you don't do. So not to run with the rationality of the market. And I think that that is something that you need to keep in mind, continue supporting yeah. the clients. But at some point, if things become irrational, so think about it, understand the reason you're taking yeah. and be a conscious decision that you're going to take that risk rather yeah. than being surprised by it.
1: I asked Mr Pinto what his outlook was today and whether there are worrying signs of bubbles akin to what we were seeing in 2008. I
4: think that obviously at some point in the next two, three years it will Mm. be uh, changing the cycle in the United States and in the rest of the world. So we have a long, long cycle of growth and at some point we'll have a recession. I don't see, at least for now, any sectors anywhere where there are red-hot leverage, Of vulnerabilities, so I think that this end of the cycle will be a more traditional end of the cycle correction, where asset pricing corrects, and some people make money, some people lose money, but it's not a crisis. I think that what we need—I mentioned this many times—what it has changed, in my view, is market liquidity. Just by the simple, by for the same fact that the banks are more capitalized and they have more liquidity, so therefore. You have less resources to provide liquidity.
1: Finally, asked Mr Pinto to think about J.P. Morgan and other big banks and the extent to which they've become winners because of the regulatory constraints that were imposed post-2008.
4: Post-crisis in the environment of the new regulation, mm. scale has been the name of the game.
1: That's a big irony, isn't it? Yeah because it was all about too big to fail being the problem before.
4: Yeah, but uh, every piece of regulation, when you think about the amount of capital that we have now versus what we have before, the amount yeah. of liquidity, the increase in the control environment, compliance, risk, legal, yeah. all sorts of things. All the things that we have to do. It's not, if you have a 5% market share or you have a 10% market share, yeah. the cost is now massively different. Yeah. So, yep. the more you pull through the pipes, yes. the more you can pay for all that.
1: Yes. So, Stephen, you were in the interview with me, with Daniel Pinto. What did you make of his verdict on the past 10 years?
0: Well, I mean, they really have emerged out of every bank across the world as the major winner here. So, it was great to hear his insight on why this was. And the thing that they all kept coming back to was scale and completeness and global. They were repeating it like a mantra. And you know, they were in a very fortunate position, Jamie Dimon insisted they have what he called a fortress balance sheet, which meant that they didn't have to take the drastic measures that a lot of their competitors did. And he talked about that ability to stay loyal to his clients, stay in the businesses that at times were very unprofitable for JP Morgan themselves, but that the clients really valued. And that enabled them to build more loyalty, keep these clients on, and ultimately end up becoming top ranked in businesses they didn't really do before the crisis.
1: The point that Daniel Pinter was making about, for example, in 2008, having done leveraged finance deals that were maybe irrational on some count and lost them, I think, you know, tens of billions of dollars, actually. The one silver lining from that is that they
0: kind of stood by their clients and they still have those relationships today, I suppose. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and that's one of the things, You know, the, the client relationships in that regard have been very sticky for them. And they were able to add new businesses from their failed rivals like Bear Stearns, and the other big business they picked up was Washington Mutual, known as WAMU. Now, with Bear Stearns, it collapsed. They got it for a song. They did pay a lot of penalties on it. But ultimately, Pinto said they game with it, for example, a prime brokerage business. Now they're one of the biggest in the world. It's incredibly profitable. It's what lots of banks who are struggling with their own earnings are going after now. And they kind of managed to get this from them. And they added that to all their existing clients and really have been going great guns from there. Now he also said that the economy is not gonna last for quite as long, the bull run that it's been on. He did say that he does expect to see some kind of check to this, you know, three, four percent unified global growth that we've been seeing recently. But he believes the less leverage in the system and, you know, higher capital balances and, and more conservative balance sheets being run by banks will probably mean that we don't endure another crisis in the same way that we did a decade ago
1: i'm sure a lot of people were saying that in 2007 as well but one area that is of huge concern in the world i think is the leverage finance business which obviously caused jp quite a lot of problems 10 years ago and people are concerned about that now in some of our interviews with jp morgan executives they were admitting elements of concern there weren't they but still playing down the risk
0: yeah, when you think about some of the techniques that are commonly seen when you have a bubble in leveraged finance, like stripping away all the protections for investors, you know, race to the bottom in interest rates. We have started to see that happen in a lot of areas of the market. And the more desperate a bank is to generate more earnings, the sharper the point is going to be on the end of their pitch there. But... Um, You know, bankers are never going to admit that they're going to have another crisis in the same way that they did last time. And, you know, certainly all the banks are a lot bigger these days as well. So potentially a collapse of an institution now arguably could be even worse than it was a decade ago because they're so much more systemic is the word now.
1: More robust, but more systemic.
0: More robust and more systemic. (laughs) Well, that's it for this week. All that's left
1: for me to do is to thank Martin and Stephen here in the studio and Laura down the line in New York. Thank you also for listening. If you're not already a subscriber, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com slash offer. And remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.